Over one in 10 infants born in the USA is born preterm. For newborns that survive this initial hurdle, developmental delays are a concern. What if there was a way that we could simulate the enrichment and learning that occurs late during in utero development to help bridge that gap for preterm infants in neonatal intensive care unit? Well, Mehdi, that's exactly what the Family Nurture Intervention aims to do. And evidence is suggesting it works. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's loop in our listeners. This is Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm Layla. And I'm Mehdi. And we're your Science Rehashed co-hosts. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. For this episode, we met with two co-author scientists working in pediatric neurology, Dr. Martha Welch, an associate professor of psychiatry in pediatrics, and pathology and cell biology at Columbia University Medical Center, as well as a co-director of the Nurture Science Program. As well as Dr. Samsa Vanhatalo, a senior consultant at the Children's Clinical Neurophysiology Department at the Children's Hospital Helsinki University Central Hospital, and founder and leading researcher of the BABA Baby Brain Activity Center. In a recent publication, these authors evaluated a cortical activity networks in infants to determine the impact of family nurture intervention, a means that facilitate parent-infant emotional connection on neurodevelopment. Their findings suggest that these interventions may bridge the gap and improve developmental outcomes for preterm infants. In her interview, Dr. Welch will provide us more background on this intervention and its applications, while Dr. Von Hatalo will discuss the nitty-gritty of the methodology and findings. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Welch. We'd like to start the episode by giving an opportunity to tell our listeners more about yourself. I'm Martha Welch. I'm a physician. And at Columbia University Medical Center, I'm professor of psychiatry in pediatrics and pathology and cell biology. I had a 25-year clinical career before this research career of 25 years, so total 50 years so far. The first 25 years, I came to some theories and ideas about mother-child interaction and about child development that I wanted to explore. So I switched tracks to an academic research track. It's been a very exciting journey. I had an incredible first 25 years. I teamed up with a Nobel laureate, Nico Timbergen, who told me that my ideas represented a paradigm shift and that it takes decades to affect a paradigm shift. But I didn't think it would take this many decades. 
And that's why I left practice and I ran a nonprofit and went to the bench research and then the clinical trials. So that's a very long-winded introduction of a 50-year career. Wow, it's fascinating. (laughs) Thank you. If we fast forward to where we are today, a paper was recently published in Science Translation on Medicine titled Facilitating Early Parent-Infant Emotional Connection Improves Cortical Networks in Preterm Infants. We would love to talk with you about the background of family nurture interventions and the importance of early life relationships. So what was the inspiration uh, or calling to work in neonatal neurodevelopment in, in general? How was I inspired to do this intervention? Yeah. Uh, we have to go back 50 years for that. During my training as a child fellow, I was required to spend four mornings a week for two years in a nursery for autistic children. And I was quite surprised because I was taught that it was a neurological disorder that couldn't be changed. So luckily I was reading the ethology work of Nico Timbergen. And of course he was the quintessential observer and thought, well, why don't I just observe? And what I saw was enormous focus of the child on the mother. And I had one child who would circle the room. We had this great big play area outdoors, fenced in. He would go the whole loop and he would come within reach of his mother, would never look at her, but she was always in his peripheral vision. When she reached for him, he would jump away. So I was very interested. I started looking at the other children. I saw the same fixation on the mother. I'm sure you'd like to know what is the intervention. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to give you a little bit of introduction so you can have the context. So Everybody knows what an orienting reflex is. It's the deer in the woods. He hears a crackle. He alerts. His ears go up his eyes. Well, that's a survival mechanism. Now, a baby has that same orienting reflex, only not to the woods, to the parents. And if the baby doesn't orient to the parents, you can't have normal development. We know that orienting reflex is measured by autonomic measures, the very ones we've used, heart rate and vagal tone. So We have shown that in positive connection, you have a positive orienting reflex. Now, the orienting reflex sets the condition for what we think is the most important reflex in child development, and we call it the autonomic social-emotional reflex. And I realized this 50 years ago, a lot of observation of children and their nannies versus children and their parents in Central Park. And I saw that the children didn't orient to the nanny. But when I saw the same child on the weekend, they had perfect orienting reflexes with the parents. Can I pause a a bit here? Because we have a very broad audience. When you talk about orientation, can you define what means a child orient to the parent? Well, the first thing they have to do is like the deer look. But this time they have to look at the parents. I see. And they have to look at the face. They have to look at the eyes. Okay? And if they don't orient... There's no emotional connection. I see. I see. Thank you. And the autonomic social-emotional reflex is that automatic response you have to somebody. I'm sure you've seen it. You come around the corner, you see somebody you really want to see, and you light up. Gotcha. Or alternatively, you see somebody scary, you have an adverse 
avoidance reaction. Well, same thing with a child and parents, okay? But we look at the mother because we're dealing with preterm infants in the NICU. Right. Mothers who just gave birth. And this autonomic social-emotional reflex is already in place in utero, but it becomes the basis for co-calming and proximity-seeking. And of course, proximity-seeking is a survival mechanism, right? Okay. This autonomic social most reflex begins with the mother. And then, of course, it extends to other family members, first the father, the grandparents, or close family members, and then eventually to other people. Like the teacher, when the child goes to school, and we know that 50 to 60% of American and Canadian children are having trouble doing that with the teacher. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's an essential function. Uh, and the, but Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. You have a question? Yeah, because it was something very fascinating in this paper that it's really grabbed my attention. It's the alpha frequency in the frontocentral cortical regions were most impacted by the FNI. Can you a bit elaborate about why the frontal region might be more related to the cognitive performance than other networks? Well, we know that the frontal cortex is responsible for executive function, emotion regulation, pretty much everything that would relate to both good development, like academically, but also to good relational development. And, you know, it's the last cortex to myelinate, last to develop. Gotcha. Yes. So it stands to reason that you see changes, but you should know that in our replication, we found the effects were more widespread. And we think it's because we did a better job of connecting quickly. Uh, we don't know, but it's a good guess. But I was thrilled that it was the frontal cortex. Do you think does this cognitive performance have any relationship with even later development of past infancy? Well, yes. Other studies have shown that, for example, early vagal tone predicts later executive function, much later teens and young adult. So I would expect that absolutely. But, you know, we didn't follow them out. And COVID stopped us from following even RCT2, which is really tragic. It's very fortunate that we have these dramatic results in both RCT1 and 2, and then an effectiveness trial at another hospital. You know, it, it's very encouraging, but the good thing would have been to follow these children out. I can see how that would be useful, but also pose some challenges. We have a few more questions, but we're going to take a short break first. If you're enjoying this episode, join the conversation with us on Twitter at Science Rehashed, where we will be rehashing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Science Rehashed to stay in the loop about our new episodes and upcoming interviews. Okay, so I have another question. Why might it be then useful to know that the brain activity can be a predictor of how the infant will develop? Yes, and, and this Van Hadelow story helps underscore that because the network function predicted the 18-month outcome, right? So you're getting at a question that I think is really important. You want to know how's this happening. Exactly. And I think that the single most powerful mediator of emotional connection and therefore optimal development is the mother's emotional expression to her baby. And 
you know, this neuronal, hormonal, emotional, and behavioral connection forms in utero as a result of autonomic factors during pregnancy. And then that baby is set up for a positive autonomic social-emotional reflex at birth. And that correlates with behaviors that we can measure. But preterm birth interrupts that connection completely, pretty much, and can result in a negative ASR because what does a child undergo? All kinds of unpleasant procedures, isolation, no need meeting whatsoever. So this has to be reestablished. And the effective and fast way is to change the negative ASR to a positive autonomic social-emotional reflex by the mother expressing her deep feelings. Because what happens? The reason I wanted to tell you about the orienting reflex is now you get a baby who was looking around the NICU like this, never looking at the mother. And we have one mother who beautifully describes this on a video. She said, the baby looked everywhere but at me. And then when I told her how upset I was that she was born early, I'm so sorry she has to go through this and not like normal children. And I cried. My baby looked straight at me and she had a hard time looking at me because she was on my chest and had all this apparatus and she struggled to get eye contact. And I didn't know she would care so much about my feelings. And that started the connection right then and there. And what do you think that is? Like, how do you think the baby is sensing this, right? Like from, from what we think, the baby's not understanding the language. Like, what is it? Oh, not language, the feelings of the emotional. How, like mechanistically, how that happens? Well, we know that people and babies uh, respond not so much to neutral stimuli, but high negative and high positive, okay? And being upset conveys high valence, okay? So babies, I'm sure, are programmed to have every every emotion and then they learn how to sort it out from the family. Babies, we do not understand how developed babies are. And these are conditioned reflexes, okay? They're all set for it and they're going to respond to negative and positive, okay? And you can see it in a normal birth. If the baby is allowed to do the breast crawl, it will arrive at the breast capable of imitating every facial expression. Interesting. Very interesting. Yes. Babies don't smile at eight weeks. They smile at birth. They don't interfere with birth. But of course, whoever sees a natural birth, (laughs) they hardly exist. And when you talk about interference, like any kind of interference? Any, yes. Not only C-section? Oh, no. Epidural, Pitocin? No. Any interference. And uh, forcing a labor. People I know these days having births in New York are allowed four hours of labor and then they induce them. So that's very challenging when we talk about natural birth. Yes. Unless you do it at home these days, you can't (laughs) have one. And so you're interfering with this autonomic social-emotional reflex, which would go smoothly. And then you would have the milk let down. You would have this sucking response that develops as the baby crawls. Baby arrives at the breast with the mouth open. And the baby arrives at the breast having scent as the cue. If you wipe the breast, the baby can't find them. If you put amniotic fluid on one breast, the baby makes a beeline for that one breast. So all these mechanisms are set up and we're interfering with it. But it doesn't matter entirely because we can counter condition these adverse circumstances. And you do it by emotional expression from the mother to the baby. 
And then as the baby gets older, the child can express and it becomes a mutual expression of feeling. But what you see with a baby, we measure it with the Welch Emotional Connection screen. The baby will orient. If it's a positive response, you'll see cozy proximity, baby melting into the mother. If you don't see that, you'll see a baby arching away, looking away. And this is how you correlate it with the clinical outcomes. Yes, uh, yes. The screen has four elements, attraction, vocal communication, facial communication, and sensitivity reciprocity. The vocal, if it's a, a newborn in the NICU, you can tell the responding by the way the baby either snuggles or tries to get away from the mother, look away. And these babies, you, you just can't believe how well they can notify the mother that they want to get away. But what we're doing by having the expression is conditioning the approach behaviors. And the, as far as facial, it's eye contact. These days you see so many children only give fleeting glances at their mothers. No, you must see sustained eye contact to know that it's positive reflex. And the other is reciprocity. And we have lovely videos in the NICU of reciprocal interactions between mother and baby. So we have the mothers do this expression in calming cycles, and it takes less and less time as time goes on for them to calm together and to get this kind of beautiful picture of reciprocity. This is fascinating. I would like also to touch base on some of the limitation and challenge of these family nurture interventions. So where do you see the difficulties or confounding variables that these might introduce in the research setting? Oh, <laughs> well, the NICU is a very tough environment. It, but we were very surprised to find, Mehdi, that it didn't matter how noisy or how active the NICU was because when the mothers and babies were having this exchange, it was as if they were in a bubble. Oh, I see. They were just riveted together and not responding to the external happenings, but just to each other was quite remarkable to see because who cannot respond to all this going on there? But no, they got wrapped up in each other. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it was the same thing with the children I treated 50 years ago. They got into this calm state, both mother and child in mutual calm. And the amazing thing about our RCT is we only had four times a week of doing this, okay? I thought that the mother was going to have to do this all day, every day. And it didn't work out that way because the NICU is an impossible environment. And four times a week got these results, which shows you that it's conditioning and that it's an autonomic response because they're calming with the mother and then they're more calm, as we show by the decline in heart rate over time. And that is fascinating, all these observations, all these like clear you know, results of the interventions on the emotion regulation and behavior of these infants. Um, what other factors do you think that these developmental outcomes might be influenced by? Like what other environmental factors or social factors, things like that? It's very well known that uh, the better the environment, the better a preterm infant's development. And what does that mean, the environment? Well, socioeconomic well-being, for example, less stress. We know that immigrant mothers have a high rate of preterm birth. And you probably know that right now the stress in Ukraine has caused an epidemic of preterm birth. Wow. So, okay. I didn't know that. Yes. Yes. 
I didn't know that about Ukraine, but I do know looking at, for example, surgical female surgical residents who are pregnant, I think the complication rate is like 50% due to the stress and lack of sleep in, in residents who are giving birth. So I can't imagine that's just residency when it's like in a wartime scenario. War zone, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. So we know that emotional connection has been drastically affected by COVID, even in pairs where no one had COVID. I did a hundred and some cases looking for emotional connection with the Welch Emotional Connection screen. Would you like to guess, Layla, how many of those were connected? What percent were connected during COVID? Oh, I'm going to say it's a very low percent. 17. Wow. And what's the baseline? What's what's like normal? Oh, 40. Wow. It, the NICU, 40. Yeah. And in a pre-COVID full-term birth around that which is still an epidemic, right? If 60% aren't connected. But the beauty is we have an intervention that's so simple, so direct, and can be entirely in the parents' and families' hands to reverse that. And, and we have these results to encourage people to try it and believe in it because if you can turn around a preterm baby, you should be able to turn around full-term babies, Right. And so where do you see these interventions and this research going next? You've mentioned a couple of different potential avenues. Oh, yes. Well, preschool. We did a study, a preschool set of centers in Connecticut that account for about two-thirds of the population going to the Stanford schools. We extended our findings there, too. Vagal tone. We measured vagal tone in many ways, and the effect sizes were between 0.89 and 109, 1.09. I mean, this is just stunning findings. So this regulatory capacity from emotional expression is the key. And it's simple, it's straightforward, it's not expensive, it's scalable. And then COVID hit, so we couldn't go on with that. So then we did it over Zoom, finding the same kind of effects only faster by Zoom with the family at home. So that should be pursued. And then we also wrote some books little poetry books, sort of acrostic poems, to have parents read to the child about how they could connect and get over upsets. And we did a pilot of that in Ohio, and it showed a significant change in the way the parents handled tantrums in just two weeks with the book. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Right? A really powerful tool and one that's easily uh, disseminated. That's right. So uh, this shows great promise. Can you imagine how I feel after 50 years on this trajectory of research to come to these wonderful results, to have them verified by a fine researcher like Samsa Van Hadelo and extended, it's just more than I ever could have dreamed, you know? I think this is substantial uh, paradigm shift in, in, in this research. Exactly. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Where do you see it in the next 10 years? Well... I've been told that to get it into pediatric practice would take 20. Okay, that's a little discouraging. And I've also been told by a very distinguished chairman of pediatrics who used to be at Columbia uh, that you have to go straight to parents. And that's feasible now that we know about Zoom. They don't all have to fly to you now. Right. The, the The silver lining of the pandemic. Okay, and then the other thing you should know about Van Hadelo is he has a wife who's a linguist, and she specializes in prime language, which is the 65 or so words that can be translated into every language. 
So when she came here with him and their six children, I asked her if she'd like to translate my Welch Emotional Connection screen into this clear, explicit, translatable language. And we did. And it is phenomenal because we found that not only do people need to express themselves emotionally in their primary language in order for the emotion to be conveyed, but also we found that doing the Welch Emotional Screen was best if it was in the screener's primary language. And I found that out in Finland because the Finnish are very good English speakers. And I was training them in English, naturally. And then I had Samsa's wife, Ulla, read it to them in Finnish, and they cried. Wow. So that tells you how important it is. So now we have it in at least 10 languages, and we're going to be looking at more. So it's very exciting because it's so simple to translate because it's only 65 possible words. It gets very lengthy. Uh, Traction takes like half a page of these words. (laughs) Wow. But it's incontrovertible. And why did I want to do this? Because people would argue with me about what was the meaning of attraction? What was the meaning of the word vocal communication? So, you know, this is so clear. It's so obvious. And not only that, but it tells you how things ought to be and how things ought not to be so clearly. It's like a guide for intervention all at the same time that it's a screening tool. And it takes three minutes or, in my case, 40 seconds. Um, Yes. Well, I've been doing it for 50 years, so I should be quick, right? And you developed it. Yeah. But it's autonomic emotional connection. That's the construct. And, you know, everybody's been so focused on brain. Well, guess what? If you don't have autonomic co-regulation, your brain can't function. It's just the same as if you have an upset stomach. You can't do math, okay? Well, if you have an upset stomach as a kid, you can't learn and you can't handle strong emotion. So you want a kid to have good brain development, you've got to get autonomic emotional connection with this co-regulation, mother and child co-regulating each other and getting into this cozy proximity with positive vocal communication facial communication, and reciprocity. That's the formula, and it's so easily done with emotional expression. This is fascinating stuff. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Welch. What exciting developments. And it must be so rewarding to see these results coming to fruition after, like you said, 50 years in the making. Now that Dr. Welch has provided us clarity on the foundation of these research, we would like to take the opportunity and talk to Dr. Van Hatalo and learn more about the data collection for this exciting study. But first, a short break. We appreciate the reviews from fans on Apple Podcasts. Lorben27 left us a kind review saying, this podcast is perfect for anyone who's interested in science but doesn't have time to sift through papers for hours. Easy to follow and really interesting convos. Thanks, Lorben. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Von Hatalo. Before we start talking research, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? My my background is medicine, so I'm a medical doctor doing clinical work uh, a few days a week. But uh, 
I started doing brain research 26 years ago during my medical studies. And I originally I was working on, on animals, but then I shifted to human studies 20 years ago, 2001. And uh, I, ever since I've been working on uh, what is called neurophysiology, which in practice means mostly brain waves, electroencephalography or EEG. And most of that, that work has been about uh, developing new methods for EEG. EEG has been around for almost 80 years, but we've been trying to make some, uh, some changes to the recording methods and then uh, especially to the ways how you can analyze it. And that analytic development actually led us to this uh, last paper together with uh, New York. I see. And speaking of that paper, your group is looking to see how cortical neurons might be affected by FNI, right? Whether it's guiding mothers to engage in specific nurturing behaviors would have an impact on the baby's brain activity. And you took some EEG recordings during active sleep and quiet sleep. Can you explain to our listeners the reason for taking these recordings and why you chose those specific phases? Well, originally it, it all started from our large scale ambition to better understand how brain works as a network. And uh, there's been a lot of studies in adults and of course in animals to sh showing that the brain has to work as a full network rather than individual blobs here and there in the brain, which would work independently. And then the network analysis is best done by using EEG because we, we think that the, the network activity arises from uh, uh, interactions between the nerve cells, the brain cells or neurons. And that activity can only be directly recorded by looking at the EEG waves, how they interact between brain areas. And we put maybe 10 years of time, a lot of efforts into first developing how uh, you can record high density EEGs from infants and then into how you can analyze the interactions between brain areas at high fidelity. After we kind of uh, perfected this uh, pipeline, we started looking around for uh, places to use it. And then we got very much attracted by this FNI trial, which had been done some years ago. And then uh, we also realized that they had been recording these infants with a method that by that time still is maybe the best possible way to record EEG waves in a way that you can then use it for network analysis. Then we contacted these, uh, these people and proposed that, can we do together a reanalysis of the data? Wow. So I had a question about something you had said. You'd said about how to get high density EEG recordings from infants. Some of our listeners might not be as familiar with neurophysiology techniques. Can you explain what that means, high density, and why it's difficult? Yes, it's um, in technical terms, it means that you put a lot of electrodes on infant's head. If you think of uh, how people are nowadays using it otherwise, in the routine clinical practice, the international guidelines tell you that you need to put eight or 10 electrodes on the newborn infant, and then you're making the full EEG. And most of the studies in this world are actually done with two or four electrodes. I see. So eight or 10 is the full EEG. But then there's been also developments for new methods and new devices where you can put a lot more electrodes. And like the, the study in New York, their device had 124 electrodes in the net. Oh, wow. Yeah, just like a net which you pull over the, the head of the baby. I see. And then, yeah, and each of those little sensors, which are actually little sponges, wet sponges, they make contact with the skin of the baby. And then that wet contact transmits the signal that is coming from the neurons mm -hmm. to the amplifier. 
And the main difficulty in that is actually movements. When the babies are sleeping, you cannot study uh, wake babies because they're moving too much. Babies are always moving if they're awake. So when they're sleeping, they stay mostly still, but they still need to breathe. And that little breathing movement is already uh, making a lot of artifacts. I see. And the artifacts from the breathing movement may be 100 times bigger than the brain signals. Oh, my God. Makes it difficult. So, the, yeah. so it's really a challenge. Yeah, it's really difficult. But all in all, and after a lot of practice, the people in New York managed to make a good enough quality recordings so that we could analyze them with the mathematical tools. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, my next question is, can you walk us through this reanalysis? What were you looking for? How did you approach it? And what did you end up finding? Well, yeah, it was a long journey, actually. It was um, maybe five years from the very start till the end of the results. And it all started from uh, going myself to New York. I spent a whole winter to dissect the traces. So we needed to identify the epochs when the infants were in active sleep and quiet sleep, so two different sleep states. Then identify which seconds are high enough each equality. Then we needed to identify the poor electrodes. If you have more than 100 electrodes around the baby's head, usually some of them are always bad. Then after that, the data was transferred to Finland and the engineers started working it. First, they needed to create an algorithm that is able to project the signals recorded from the scalp, from the skin, onto infant's uh, cortex. So we had a 3D model of the infant brain, and then that 3D model brain was uh, parcellated, so divided into 58 patches of the cortex, the brain surface. And then we needed to estimate what is the activity in each of these uh, patches, as opposed to the original signal that was recorded from the baby's skin. So then we say that we are in the source space. So we are in the space on brain cortex where the signals are originally coming from. And then, then we started another level of analysis that was looking for uh, connections or connectivity, we call it. So interaction between two different patches. So you have 58 patches, each connecting to 58 other patches. So that makes more than a thousand connections altogether. And then the signals were looked for each of these connections for each of the frequency bands, which we had 24. In the end, we had 24 frequency bands and more than 1,000 connections. There's a lot of connections. And then you get the, the connectivity matrix, which shows you what happens between each of these patch pairs. And after that, we studied if the connections are sensitive to infant's uh, sleep state, which they seem to be. If they are sensitive to infant's age, you never can study the infants at exactly the same age, but there are somewhat differences. So we needed to correct for that. And after all those, then you could start comparing the groups that had got the standard care versus the ones who had received this FNI care. And that analysis uh, in the end showed there are some connections out of these more than 1,000 connections in the brain. Some of them, like tens of them, were different between these two baby groups. I see. And that's how you're able to study differences in, in infant cognition and infant well-being. Yeah. Very interesting. And you mentioned these yeah, phases. You, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. First, so first, we identified the difference between these uh, two groups, standard care and FNI group. Uh, then we had what we call subnetworks. That was the so-called sensitive network to the treatment. And then that network strength could be compared to, for example, the cognitive outcomes. We could see that uh, the later outcome of the babies is different depending on the strength in that specific subnetwork. Oh, very interesting. So you're actually able to correlate the strength yeah. of this network to the baby's cognitive outcomes, which is like yes. 
I'm not a neuroscientist, but that seems to me such an incredible insight to be able to look at the cognition of newborns, right, and babies that can't, can't communicate. Well, uh, actually, that correlation was uh, to the cognitive outcome two years later. And that correlation and the meaning of that analysis is that in the first place, we could only say that if the baby gets FNI treatment, their brain is altered. But we did not know if that uh, alteration, if that FNI effect has any meaning. One way to assess the meaning is that uh, you see if that treatment is making any change later on in child's life. That's what we could show that the change that we are making by FNI does have an effect on their later cognition. And what I think I would say even more exciting to myself was that then we also wanted to see what is the, the cause of the effect or how does it relate to normal growth. We all know that if you are born very preterm, there are some burdens in your um, brain development. The brain is not quite the same as it would be for a term age baby. So we took a group of babies from uh, Helsinki that were born at a normal term age. And then we compared their networks to the networks of these uh, preterm infants from Colombia. And it looks like the babies who had been treated by FNI had uh, brain networks that compared well with the term babies, normal babies from Helsinki. Whereas the babies who got their standard care, uh, they were lagging. So that make a very simple explanation of the finding is that the FNI treatment is able to correct the effect of the burden on prematurity on the preterm infants. That is such a powerful conclusion to be able to draw, right? Uh, because as we were speaking with Dr. Welch, FNI is not an intervention that needs specialized equipment, right? It's a, on the easier end of interventions to implement. So that's a really, really powerful result. Well, yeah, I mean, as a biologist, I'm not surprised at all. Just to make another shortcut, I would say that um, the biology has invented all the, the tools we need for development. And the medicine and all these expensive devices, they have very limited extra power over what the biology has invented already. And the emotional connection or parent-infant connection is, is one of the most powerful environmental effects that you may have for a child. Absolutely. And I have some questions about the conclusions of the study, but before we get there, you mentioned these phase-phase correlations in the paper. Can you explain to us what the functional significance of these phase-phase correlations during sleep are? Yes, there are different ways how neurons uh, may interact. And now, if we translate that to EEG waves, there are two main ways of measuring brain networks is to look at the amplitude-amplitude correlations or phase-phase correlations. Amplitude-amplitude correlation means that the height or the magnitude of the waves becomes correlated between two brain areas. Whereas phase-phase correlation means that the exact phase in the oscillation or in the waveforms becomes correlated between two brain areas. And the main difference there is that the phase-phase correlation requires very accurate binding of two areas. And there's a lot of theoretical and animal works showing that it's actually a phase-phase correlation requires very, very frequent and rapid interaction between two areas to occur. And that's the reason why we think that phase-phase correlation is a method of choice when you want to look at the high-precision networks. There's a good number of studies showing that in the adults, our perception, for example, when you hear my talk, when the instant when you realize that I'm saying this or that word, that has a correlation in the phase-phase correlation. So your brain is and brain areas are interacting by phase-phase correlation, and they make you perceive my wordings. I see what you mean. So it's at play right now as I'm listening to you. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. 
We have a few more questions, Dr. Von Hatalo, after this quick break. If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free Science Rehashed water bottle. That's patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to join. You mentioned that you were comparing the New York, the Columbia preterm babies who have the FNI intervention versus the Columbia preterm babies that don't have the intervention with babies born in Finland who were full term, right? Uh, And I know that there's different medical practices at large between the U.S. and, and Finland. So I'm wondering how that might account for any differences or if that factored into your model. Well, those differences are hard to measure. But uh, when it comes to ICU practices, just the medical medical practices, they're very, very similar, comparable between uh, Colombia and Helsinki. I mean, in this context, I would say that the bigger difference is in the non-medical surroundings. And of course, what I think we all are aware is, is that the American preterm care is much more heterogeneous than it is in Scandinavia. Depends uh, so much on, on which hospital you end up uh, being submitted to. Yes. And also speaking of mother-child bonding, there's very little guaranteed maternity leave, right, in the U.S. compared to in Scandinavia or really the rest of the world. But I think that is after when you're... That's a major loss for American babies. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so hopefully research like this will help in the huge amount of evidence for the need to have that support. I've been surprised to realize when it comes to findings like this or the whole idea of FNI, where everything makes intuitive sense and there's no biological reason why how you could argue against it. But still, there are always these cynic people who say that uh, um, you need to follow evidence-based rules and blah, blah. But there's no way how you could generate evidence that would be conclusive enough to, <laughs> to overcome these cynics. Exactly. Exactly. It's incredibly frustrating. Focusing on the network analyses back for a second, because I'm, I'm also really fascinated by that. How can these EEG network analyses like this one be leveraged in clinical studies? What are sort of the advantages or disadvantages of using this approach? And forgive me, this might be a, a naive question, but I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not a neurophysiologist. And so this, these sort of studies are really exciting and exotic to me. I would say that that is maybe a naive question, but it's also a crucial question that we should be keeping us asking ourselves that why is this and that useful? And we too rarely do it, to be honest. After all our work, I try to be pragmatic and realistic. And I don't think that much of the network neuroscience, including our work, not much of that is going to benefit routine care. But that's not the level of where it should be making the advance. The main reason is that there's so much uh, noise. I would say that the sensitivity of the measures is not at the level of what is needed for individual care. But still, it, it may have major impact uh, by, by benchmarking. I mean, that's how the medical terminology is how we call it, that by benchmarking clinical trials. For example, in, in this particular case, you had uh, two interventions. One was standard care, the best possible evidence-based care delivered by one of the best hospitals in the country. And then you had this uh, tiny addition, FNI, 
then you ask yourself that what is the effect of this treatment? And their network neuroscience seemed to be able to show the effect. And the same thing is coming over and over. We are badly needing new methods to show the effect of any intervention on um, brain development. And the current dogma for 20 or 30 years has been that if you do anything on the infants, you need to prove the effect by showing the neurodevelopmental advantage, which you need to show at two years or six years of life. And if you follow these infants for two years or six years, in practice, you, you have already diluted the initial effect because there's been so much else in their life after the ICU period. Yeah, you can't hold all of that the same, right, for years of their life. There's no way. No one even thinks that they, they don't even think of it as a possibility. But still, there's this dogma that uh, you need to f follow them long enough. And we are in a kind of stalemate where there are lots of nice ideas for interventions, but you cannot run a study because, or you cannot, I mean, it doesn't make sense to run a study because it takes way too long, so many years to complete it, too expensive, plus that you have uh, already lost your effect by the time when you come to the outcomes. So in that context, these very early outcomes, like the EEG in our case, is potentially a solution. So you could measure the effect of the intervention at term age rather than two years. And the term age is so early that you have not really had time enough to destroy your effect by environmental effects. Yeah, and the ICU practices are so correlated, right? Yeah, I mean, in practice, it has been difficult to show how IU, ICU would affect later outcomes at two or six years of life, just because um, there are so many other things happen after that. So the coming to the question that how do you leverage that in clinical studies? I mean, that's exactly the way huh? to use it as a very early outcome measure. You had described the complex process of mapping these networks and looking at all these different networks and the methods you use to define them. And you produced this beautiful figure in your paper that showed all these differing networks that looked like this complex spider web of interconnected regions. And so I'm wondering, in this study you described the networks that were changing in response to this particular intervention and how that correlated with effects later on. But I'm wondering if you've learned anything overall about the health and development of children or like brain function or maturation in these changing networks in your long time as a neurophysiologist? Well, there were many smaller teachings along the way about how, how brain develops, how different networks develop over time, how they could be affected by prematurity. But most of those are not something you want to publish as a part of this main story because they would just screw up, I would say confuse the readership. They gave us a lot of seeds for future studies. And actually, we are currently running uh, quite a few other studies uh, that are spin-offs from this work, not really uh, uh, looking at the effects of FNI, but more uh, looking at the early brain development. That is so exciting. Yeah, I was just about to ask, what are the next steps for this research? Two big questions. One is to understand how different the ways of neuronal interactions develop over time. I mentioned the amplitude-amplitude correlation and phase-phase correlation, but there are also some other ways how neurons interact. We're currently studying how they proceed during the late prematurity and how the development is different in different brain areas. So this is very, very basic science. And then the other question is that we had developed a machine learning-based tools to quantify the maturation of the baby's brain. And that is actually super exciting. We have an algorithm that is able to tell you at one week's accuracy what is the maturational level of the infant. Wow. So it's much, much more accurate than the MRI measures that people are publishing in Nature and Science nowadays. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And now we are analyzing how do different brain areas maturate. So we have thought that the frontal areas are always lagging behind and the occipital and the backside of the brain are more mature early on. And then they match in development later when kids are toddlers. But now it looks like it could be the other way around, that the frontal lobe is actually maturing super fast in the end of the pregnancy. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it links to many of the effects that we see in executive functions Mm -hmm. after ICU periods. If the frontal areas are maturing very rapidly Mm -hmm. and then the infants are put into intensive care, of course, uh, that rapid development is affected. That is so fascinating. I am so I I can't wait to learn more. So I hope the research goes well because I can't wait to read about it. That is that is really incredible. Yeah. What is easily forgotten is that these EGs are they might feel a bit uh, theoretic. And if you look at the EG waves, they look uh, chaotic compared to MRI images. You actually see the brain. And I think there's a major bias in neuroscience that we like to see the beautiful images and the, anything that comes from magnetic resonance imaging is is always coming to the New York Times and major media. But there's very good data showing that the information value of the MRI, when we try to understand the function of the brain, is, is very limited. I see what you mean. The last question that we like to ask everyone uh, that we interview is, what do you do for fun when you're not doing this incredible research? I have uh, six kids at home. Oh. I'm repairing my old house. Oh, wow. Got your hands full. So there's quite some work. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is so exciting. I also have a question that I'm contemplating continuously, that how should I use my time wisely? Isn't the question we all deal with, right? We should. We should much more than we do. And uh, just making more fancy studies is not always benefiting the world. So when it comes to the neuroscience, I'm trying to ask myself that what are the studies that uh, our society really really needs it's not always the fanciest but there, there may be things that are less obvious but their impact would be higher i think that is a really important guiding question that we should keep in mind like what's not the flashiest study or what's you know not looking for oh what's the study that's going to get us published in the highest journal but what's the study that's going to produce the knowledge about the world that we really need yeah well thank you so much for spending time this morning talking to us yeah thank you thank you so much for inviting What a fantastic demonstration of using objective data to confirm clinical interventions that have been decades in the making. I can't wait to see where these research goes next. Absolutely, Mehdi. It's exciting to see the huge impact that these simple interventions have on the neurologic development of preterm infants, especially when early labor is common and we've made such strides in many other areas of improving neonatal intensive care unit outcomes. And listeners, be sure to tune in next episode for our special 360 perspective on social media and mental health. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was co-written by Lauren Granada and Caitlin Holly, edited and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was made by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehash for making this episode possible.